Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party, this episode featuring former Home Secretary and former Education Secretary, former Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, David Blunkett, an absolute hero of mine. Um, Our times, as I'm sure you can imagine, uh, during the interview, you just felt so emotional. He talks so well and he's got... When people talk about straight-talking politicians, I think sometimes they confuse it with people who are just a little bit offensive and rude. But David Blunkett's on the most straight-talking in the, in the real sense. He's, he just... He has such a, a, a wonderful, um, straightforward way of talking about the pragmatic elements of politics, the, the things that he believes in and why he believes them. Uh, and he's able to just talk about them in a very straightforward, simple way. On top of that, he's got so much heart and soul. Um... Reminiscent, really, of, of of Tessa Jowell, of of people who just public service really means the world to them, and and helping people with their lives is the reason they went into politics, and it's just so heartwarming to hear people talk like that, and to be in the presence of people that have achieved. I mean, his achievements are incredible, anyway. Uh, let alone having to do them uh, blind. It's just remarkable. Uh, and it is sometimes, only when you sit opposite someone, you, you really, really appreciate just how incredible a person they are. And he was just wonderful. Um, so uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, thanks to everyone uh, who, who came on the night and to people who've uh, started to come to me on the tour, did London the other night in the main room at the other Palace Theatre, which was just a real thrill and it was great. Um, uh, and the audience was superb, so I can't wait... Um, to get on the road. Uh, and on the 1st of February, I'm in Camberley. Uh, the 2nd of February, Gloucester. The 3rd of February in Salford. The 9th of February in Maidstone. The 15th of February in Leicester, excuse me. The 18th of February, North Allerton. The 19th, Darlington. The 20th, Barnard Castle. The 21st, Hexham. So I've got four nights in the northeast there. Um, then on the 7th of March, I'm back at the South Bank Centre in London. The 8th of March, Stafford. The 12th of March, at the South Bank Centre, again in London. 14th of March, Cambridge. 15th of March, Corby. The 19th of March, at the Other Palace in London. The 26th of March, at the Leicester Square Theatre. Uh, the 31st of March, in Bristol. The 5th of April, in Faversham. The 10th of May, in Aberystwyth. That's my only gig in Wales on the tour. Uh, the 12th of May, in Edinburgh. The 13th of May, in Glasgow. They're the only Scottish dates on the tour. The 14th of May, in Newcastle, and the 18th of May in Chorley. We may add a few more. Um, who knows? Uh, there's a couple of uh, options for added dates. I'll let you know about those. All tickets for those can be get got, indeed, through the website, mattford.com slash live. Um, and thank you for your emails. Uh, politicalparty at gmail.com is the... Good evening, uh, everyone. Welcome to the show. Leave you. Um, oh, excellent. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, uh, give me a chance if you've been here before. Excellent, welcome back, regulars. Can we cheer if this is your first time? Excellent, welcome, newcomers. Thank you very much. Well, what an incredible time to be alive. Uh, 
I'm sure people watched uh, the, the drama unfold on telly last night where Theresa May finally got people to agree on her deal uh, by changing the deal. Uh, sort of remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, bartering technique she's got. She's convinced people that now this means the deal's got through. She fundamentally changed the deal by opening up the Irish backstop, which means it's not the deal anymore. Uh, it's fucking stupid. So I'd say, like, I know the house is on the market for 300 grand, but 200 grand is all I can give you. 200 grand or nothing. 200 grand. A million? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for accepting my deal. Absolutely fucking stupid. Deeply, I, I mean, it's really worth... I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are people here who voted Leave uh, as, as well as voted Remain. Um, it doesn't matter which way you voted in the referendum. Um, where does a bit? But um, it's, uh, it's fine. It's, it's, it's more of some people's fault than others. It's, it's all I'm saying. But uh, I can understand why some Leave voters are annoyed. I do understand why, because you vote for something, you're not getting it. And in terms of the backstop, I don't know how much people understand about the, uh, the backstop, but there is a reasonable element to why people would be annoyed. Effectively, because we can't find a solution, Britain would be kept, the UK would be kept in, effectively, a customs union with the EU indefinitely. Now, obviously, to some Brexiteers, that's unacceptable. I get that bit. The problem is that they think a price worth paying for leaving that customs union is a hard border on the island of Ireland, which would inevitably lead to terrorist atrocities and, and, and the army on the streets, which I don't think is a price worth paying for leaving a customs union. So I get the reasonable bit. It's like saying, look, we've split up. Um, we, it's ludicrous that we continue to live uh, under the same roof. So I am going to move out. However, that does mean uh, that your house is now going to be taken over by paramilitaries who are going to use it in a frontline war with the British army and the police. I just think it's better for all people involved. So it's quite hard to take. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, has been doing the, the media rounds this week, of course. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, after the vote last night, he, he said, well, look, no one, uh, no one wanted no deal. Uh, which isn't true. He wanted no deal because he was on telly the previous week saying that he wanted no deal. He also gave a speech at JCB last week where he said, look, no one, by, you know, no one mentioned, by the way, Turkey. Uh, in the referendum. No, I, I certainly did not mention Turkey in the referendum. And then videos emerged of him, as we all remember, mentioning Turkey nearly every day during the referendum. It got to the point where, where they interviewed him on the BBC this morning and said, Boris Johnson, I thought he was going to go, nope. <laughs> I don't know where you're getting this information from, by the way. I can't uh, He also said, well, you know, the EU will, will accede, frankly, to our demands because it takes two to tango. Like, yeah, but... It does take two to tango, but we agreed to tango, and we've spent three years tangoing, and the EU agreed to tango. Now, you want to do a naked body pop. Like, this is... We have been tangoing, and they agreed to... It's a fucking disaster. I mean, it is remarkable that basically part of the problem with the backstop is no technology. What, what the Commons has partly asked the reason made to do, apart from the only way you could get out of the backstop is to say put a time limit on it. So you say, right, we'll stay in the backstop for, say, two years, but after that we're coming out of that arrangement, and then if that leads to a hard border, it leads to a hard border. Otherwise, and this is what they genuinely believe, a technological solution that currently does not exist anywhere on Earth, and therefore we have to conclude anywhere else will present itself in time. To, it's fucking incredible. They're basically saying, well, eventually something will happen. So let's just agree that we, we come out of the customs union and before the deadline, it'll, something will turn up. It's just, no other, when you think about the, the, the seismic decision that that is and what it will mean for people's lives, and almost certainly fatalities, if you like Churchill sending people to war saying, we'll fight them on the beaches, um, 
I'm not sure with what yet. Um, we don't have many guns, but I'm sure something will turn up. And Churchill, of course, the uh, well-known white supremacist. If you've been uh, following Twitter this week, uh, a green MSP called, um, called Winston Churchill a white supremacist. And a lot of people got upset because, um, to, uh, long story short, he's not. Um, I mean, it's quite, quite worrying, obviously, when you read the details of, uh, of what a no-deal Brexit would mean. I think no-deal is growing in likelihood, despite what people are saying. Uh, and there's that big, uh, big letter sent uh, to the Prime Minister this week from the British Retail Consortium. And it is interesting, depend, even as a Remainer, I'm still slightly cynical, depending on who the people writing the letter are. So the British Retail Consortium write this letter saying, in the event of no deal, we won't be able to get food through. You know, there'll, there'll be no food on the shelves. And you look down the list, you go, signed by Co-op. You know, I could live without that. Uh, Asda, never go. McDonald's, right, this is fucking serious. <laughs> fucking get in the way of the new Grand Mac with bacon. What sort of mess is this? Some sort of no-meal Brexit. <laughs> Thank you so much. I was, I was really worried about that one, and arguably, rightly so. Uh, one of the, I mean, the, what is remarkable about Brexit is the details, as well as it being terrifying, some of the detail is fantastic. Uh, the government, as I'm sure you're aware, have uh, granted a contract to a ferry company. So in the event of a, a no-deal Brexit, uh, we will need extra ferry crossings to bring in food, medicine and blood. Nothing to worry about whatsoever. Um, so they gave a contract to uh, a ferry company called Seabourn Freight, uh, a £13.8 million contract. And then it emerged after they signed the contract, this company does not have any ferries. Um, it's never had any ferries. It does not currently possess a single boat. They're basically giving the deal to Del Boy. <laughs> the whole thing's a fucking black. Um, apparently, according to the government, they said they carefully vetted the history of the company. And in a way, the logic is sound, isn't it? Because none of their boats have ever sank. <laughs> They've never been let. And they've got a 100% record in many, in many columns. Um, but the, this company, and this is what really worries me, and Hilary Benn discovered this when he, he uh, cross-examined them at the Select Committee, they had copied and pasted the terms and conditions for their contract from a takeaway food company. So in the terms and conditions of the contract, we've signed, the British state has signed with this company, it agrees that takeaway drivers have to arrive by a particular time, <laughs> and there are agreements on whether food is cold or not. Now, part of me actually thinks this isn't a mistake. No deal is going to be so bad. This is just the future of Deliveroo. Which we're getting all our food in by ferry. Yeah, sorry it's a bit late. It came from Paris, mate. I mean, it's bad enough waiting for a Deliveroo driver on a bike, isn't it? But waiting for a ferry. Oh, this is him. No, no, no. No, it's just a canoe. Everyone calm down. Um... A number of people, that part of the amendments that were voted on yesterday, one was uh, to stop uh, a no deal, that one went through, and then we found out actually it's just an indicative vote, it means absolutely nothing. Uh, another one uh, was never voted on, Stella Creasy. Uh, her amendment was to have a citizens' assembly to sort out Brexit. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but literally, I mean, it's so funny. I was watching it live on BBC Parliament yesterday. Stella Creasy got up on the floor of the House of Commons and said, what we need to sort out this problem is to appoint a few hundred people from the population of this country to sit in a chamber <laughs> with differing opinions and eventually come to an agreement. In the f on the floor of the house... Have you... Yeah, just randomly, about 650 people. I mean, but how would... Yeah, we'd all pick them, obviously, otherwise it wouldn't be fair. But what she says is different. She says it's not like Parliament, because these people would be randomly selected. 
But that'd be even worse. We fucking picking people at random. Have you met the public lately? Fucking hell. Oh my god. Well, um, uh, we've been talking in our little breakout group, and um, I, I think I would rather. I mean, I have call me Romaniak if you will. I would like to stay in the EU. I would, but I, I take you know, Dean has different views. He says that yes, the Turks are all paedophiles, and and. They, they shouldn't be allowed, and he'll shank them if they're on the estate. I mean, I, I don't know if that helps or not. Um, fucking dreadful idea. Um, yesterday, before the vote, I thought, I'll just check the Twitter feeds of all the different Brexit ministers, just in case. Uh, Chris Heaton-Harris uh, is a Brexit minister, and on the day of, arguably, the biggest day of democracy, uh, in the, on the floor of the House of Commons since this government came to office, Chris Heaton-Harris, in the morning of this totemic day, tweeted... My mate got one of those Dyson ball cleaners in the sales. <laughs> Unfortunately, he misunderstood what it was, which is why I'm now taking him to lo our local A&E. <laughs> On the day of a fucking vote that could lead to, like, mass unrest. I was a it would have been like Jack Straw on the day of the Iraq vote, tweeting, three years of studying for my ballet degree, and all I got was a tutu. <laughs> Incredible. Um, there have been all sorts of studies done, of course, into what may uh, happen as a result of a no-deal Brexit. We might not get food. The Trade Policy Observatory talks about the manufacturing sector. Uh, a website called Illicit Encounters uh, says that adultery will go up by 35% as a result of a no-deal Brexit. And on their press release, they say, in stressful times, people are more, um, go do more infidelity and people will, in their words, seek their own trade deals. Um, <laughs> I just thought, people don't talk about it like that, do they? But I, and then I thought, I actually can't imagine Boris talking about it. Like Would you like to uh, wander off somewhere and do a, perhaps do our own trade deal? I mean, I'm, I'm sensing friction at the border already. <laughs> Too far. <laughs> It'd be really funny if you have a second referendum and that's a big issue in the next one, wouldn't it? Why weren't we told? Why wasn't that on the side of a bus? Um, a former MP uh, called George Caravan, and he said in pursuit of a second independence referendum, Scottish National Party MPs should uh, enact low-level civil disobedience on the streets of London. And one of his ideas was that SNP MPs should block the tube at rush hour. No one would notice. It's a fucking stupid idea, but he said what he's called for is like low-level civil disobedience. Like what? What is low levels? Just be a bit rude to people in the hope you're going to... I mean, it, being rude to people and the tube being blocked, that's just what happens in London every day anyway. If you want to call civil unrest in London, just coordinate at the same time at one point in the day for all the video screens to say your tube is running seven minutes late. It'd be a fucking revolution. Uh, there was, oh, man, man, I only found out this this morning, but last night, uh, when they were going through the division uh, lobbies, uh, one Tory MP was singing as he was going through the lobby, vote, vote, wherever you may be, vote, vote, vote with the DUP. And this is, this has really pissed people off. Saying you can't be, you can't be singing about vote with the DUP. Uh, vote, vote, wherever you'll be. Uh, vote, vote, vote with the DUP. But obviously, they didn't hear the second verse, which was, because uh, they've got friends in the paramilitaries, and if you don't, they'll, they'll shoot your knees. Um, <laughs> Slightly more exciting. Uh, he made it, I mean, does he do that every time he votes for the DUP? Sing a different song. Say D-U-P. Say it for always. 
I can't sing, which... Uh, <laughs> that's so fucking shit. Um, uh, you may have seen last night uh, a new BBC documentary uh, called Inside Europe, uh, the story of why Britain left the European Union. Uh, two incredible bits in it where Nick Clegg uh, is talking about entering into a deal with the Tories. He said, you know, went into this deal and uh, initially, uh, you know, everything was fine. But then when they started banging on about Europe, it was, it was like being trapped in a cage with a, with a demented gorilla. But... Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a story that's told by one of uh, David Cameron's former special advisers about how the relationship with Europe never really got off to a good start. So he's in a, a meeting with Angela Merkel, and Merkel is starting to come round to the idea that they need to give Britain a better deal, otherwise we are going to leave the EU. And he sits down with her, he says, Look, I'm, a, I'm facing a barrage, a barrage from these Tory MPs. And she turns to her advisor and goes, barrage, what does that mean? And Cameron goes, uh, blitzkrieg. Trying to help. I mean, fuck, what did he say when he met the Japanese? Fucking hell. Yeah, I'm having a, I'm, I'm facing wipeout at home. Wipeout, what does that mean? Oh, Hiroshima, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. You get the idea. Absolute idiot. Um, now, there are, there are two other uh, big stories that you might have seen. Uh, a Labour MP is on the verge of going to prison. Uh, Fiona uh, Anna, I've got to write this down. Uh, Onasanya uh, has been convicted, the Labour MP for Peterborough, of perverting the course of justice. She was caught doing 41 miles an hour in a 30-mile-hour zone and then lied and said it was her brother. Now, um, she sent a message to a uh, group of Labour MPs on a WhatsApp group, which I managed to get, and this is what she said about her conviction. In times like these, the natural inclination of believers is to ask God, why? Personally, I do not, because in my experience, the answers are usually far above and beyond my reach. I mean, you were doing 41 in a 30. I mean, it's not <laughs> quite an easy answer, really. Um, she says, what I do know is that I'm in good biblical company, along with Joseph, Moses, Daniel, and his three Hebrew friends, who were each found guilty by courts of their day. I mean, who can forget Leviticus, when Moses gets a fixed penalty notice on the way <laughs> to Mount Sinai? I mean, the parallels there. <laughs> like in doing 41 miles an hour in Peterborough to people shouting free Barabbas. Um, <laughs> She'll be sent on a speed awareness course, which she calls it church. Uh, she said it. This is the final bit. She said to some Labour MPs, while God did not save them from their guilty verdict, he did save them in it that ensured their greatest days of impact were on the other side of a guilty verdict. Of course, this is equally true of Christ, who was accused and convicted by the courts of his day, and yet this was not his end, but rather the beginning of the next chapter in his story. Which was crucifixion. <laughs> I'm not sure she's thought this through. That was all part of a career plan, really. Speed, get caught, get crucified, rise from the dead, become Prime Minister. Uh, she's not the weirdest uh, politician around at the moment. This goes to... I've had to write so many of these down. A green candidate, he wants to be the green candidate for London Mayor, a guy called Zach Polanski. Does anyone know him? No, good. He is a pervert, because... <laughs> This has surfaced. He gave an interview to The Sun before he joined the Green Party. And this is the... I've managed to find the article on the internet. And here we go. Brace yourself. <clears throat> Hypnotherapist. Great start. <laughs> Hypnotherapist Zach Polanski says he can boost your bra size using the mind alone. <laughs> this is extremely new approach, he says. But I can see it becoming popular very quickly. Because it's so safe and a lot cheaper than a boob job, says Zach. Um... I mean, I'm, you're cynical. It worked for me. Uh, in theory, he says, it could work on other areas of the body too. Ooh. 
Uh, there's no reason it can't help nails grow longer and strong. It's not quite what we were expecting on that bit. But... <laughs> Someone's like, I mean, you know, some of us would like parts to be smaller, wouldn't we? So, you know, so... <laughs> my belly. Um... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have, uh, of course, every month we have a very special guest here. But I think it's true to say that this month, a, a particularly special uh, guest. He's someone I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Uh, but it's true, it is true. He is a, a, an absolute titan of British politics. Uh, we've got David Blunkett in the second half, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, as always, ladies and gentlemen, you have been uh, a superb audience. Thank you very much. See you in a bit. So, as I was saying, um, as I was saying, a, a true star of British politics, and not only because... Uh, he led um, historic reforms uh, at uh, education and at the Home Office as one was, was one of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's leading uh, cabinet ministers, synonymous with that period, but also overcame huge personal adversity uh, and never let that get in the way of being, uh, frankly, one of the best politicians I think this country has ever produced, a real titan, a true statesman. Please raise the roof for the one and only David Blunkett. <laughs> If I were Graham Norton, I'd say, isn't he lovely? <laughs> what a lovely introduction. Oh, well, David, thank you so much for, for coming so, down and, and doing the show. Um, I'm, uh, I'm sure many people here are, are admirers of yours, as, as, as well as me being a, a one You don't well. have to be. You can come at me later. You know, <laughs> have to have a go. I sound like Boris Johnson. Yeah. Um, I, uh, oh, I wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> <laughs> let's start with let's start with the matters of the day first. Yeah. Uh, there was a great video of you uh, this week or last week, recently anyway, on Politics Live uh, during a discussion of a No Deal Brexit, and uh, fellow Labour politician Chris Williamson uh, was also on, and he was uh, talking about a No Deal. I love deal. this fellow politician. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Carry on. You covered your face because you couldn't bear to. I don't know, to, to not even to listen to what he had to no, say. I was listening. I just got my head in my hands like this. It was, it was a difficult moment. I thought he was going to join with uh, Rhys Mogg and the ERG, as they call themselves, uh, in advocating a no deal is wonderful. That's why I put my head in my hands. He qualified it later by saying, well, it'll be all right because we'll have the socialist millennium. You know, we'll uh, overcome all e inequality and we'll invest in everything. I love it. I'd really wish we could do it. Really um, do. You used to lead uh, a, um, a council that was described as the Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire uh, when you led Sheffield I City. I did. With Sheffield I City did. Council. So it was great. <laughs> do you, I mean, that was, that was on the forefronts, really, of what the yeah. press dubbed the loony left, wasn't it? I mean, did you yeah, consider I, it I to was, be loony? I was elected as leader as the moderate. Would you believe that? <laughs> uh, I don't actually renege on any of the resolve from any of that. I think what we did... In the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister. We were fighting to retain uh, services for the local community. We'd lost 50,000 jobs in three years in engineering and steel. The city was in meltdown. We had to do something. And I, looking back, I'd do it again uh, in those circumstances. But you live in a different world. Things move on. And if you don't move with them, you're caught in a moment in time. So, you know, n never actually said... 
I'm sorry, we did it. We did the wrong things because I don't think we did. And some of the things stood the test of time in terms of looking back. We had the most fantastic transport policy. You tried a bit of it in Nottingham later, actually. Was it the tram? Yeah, we yeah we got a tram. It's unfortunately very expensive. Whereas back in the 1970s and the early 80s, we'd fought through to get this policy where city centre transport was free. Children could all travel for 2p. Uh, you could travel anywhere in South Yorkshire for 10p, which is about 50p now. Uh, and, you know, people just loved it. And where everywhere else passenger numbers were dropping outside London, because London was different, um, we were putting numbers on. So it was a great policy. And I, I love, I was talking about it the other day in the bus station to a camera from BBC Look North, when somebody walked by and decided to abuse me for being a traitor over Brexit. But we'll come to that later. <laughs> so what's uh, it? I, he, he, I, he belonged to National Action or EDL, we're not entirely sure. But he did, he was described to me, he had a shell suit on, so, you know. <laughs> um, you know. He said some other vile things, but we won't go into that tonight. No, I mean, it, do, you, uh, do you take abuse personally? Of course. Um, you know, I've always been oversensitive. I mean, if you say anything unpleasant to me tonight, I'll start crying. <laughs> I, I, I was... What would you call them these days? I was the original flower. What would they call it? Snowflake. snowflake. I was the original snowflake. <laughs> Sound um, like a rapper. <laughs> no, it 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 still obviously if you cut somebody it hurts. But 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 but, it, it, but people like him don't worry me, because they're loonies. The trouble is that the loonies have been given permission to be loonies in public, and once you open the box and the genie comes out, it's very difficult to get it back in. Uh, and I am genuinely, genuinely, I mean, we're having a nice time tonight, but I'm genuinely worried about what we've released, the division, the hatred, the bitterness, the edginess, um, you know, the, the, the way in which people treat each other, you would never have thought was acceptable. You've had a long and distinguished political career. Do you think this is politically the worst it's ever been? Well, it's been the, it's the worst in my lifetime. I, I do uh, enjoy being with young people at Sheffield University, and uh, they think that my time is history, so I have to understand that. But I say, when you're in despair over Trump and Putin and what's happening in Hungary and Brexit and the shambles here, just think what it was like in the 1930s. I mean, seriously, we, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, um, they lived through incredible times, and we will come out of this but we need people to be courageous, to have confidence, to believe in what they believe in, to believe in their values and to be able to articulate them. And we've got some wonderful young people in politics, in my own party, and they just need to be brave enough to come forward in the years to come. In terms of the current leadership of the Labour Party, you talk about... I'm not uh, going to criticise anybody tonight, OK? Uh, and not least... Well, I'm not going to criticise anybody. <laughs> Okay, maybe not criticise, but maybe we could analyse. Okay, we'll analyse. <laughs> That's a suitably academic way of approaching it. Okay. We could uh, analyse the, the changes of the Labour Party since you were in government. Yeah. Um, well, we've lost. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing. I said to somebody who was interviewing me, who came from a very much further left than me, 
Look, the greatest betrayal of all is not to be in government. You, you might fail in government, you might let people down, you might be inadequate, you might be sort of neoliberal is the great slur. But you're at least there. You know, you're investing in education and health, you're putting in the minimum wage, you're giving people a chance to go to university who didn't have it, you, you're opening up the opportunities for peace in Northern Ireland, you introduce the Human Rights Act and freedom of information and data protection and you're giving people devolved power in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and the cities. I mean, you know, it's all, it's all total betrayal, of course. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a nothingness, but you're in government. You're doing things rather than talking about it or criticising people. So the biggest betrayal of all is not being there. And that's what we need to get. We need to be in government. Simple as that. I've got it. The dog agrees. <laughs> We've got a lovely dog uh, called Barley. Barley. He's only two. Only had him a few months. Uh, he, believe it or not, his dad was a golden retriever. One of my stepdaughters said his mum's got a lot to answer for. Because <laughs> for those who, for those viewing the podcast, he's he's black, completely black. Um, and his, his mum was a German Shepherd, and if anybody gets a bit uh, uppity tonight, uh, I'll set him on you. Uh, so I was going to say, you, 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 sort of, you want to be careful calling him Barley, because Theresa May might run through him. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a you good didn't like that, did you? You said, you, just before he came on, you said he was, uh, he was really clever. He is clever. He's a very, very good guide dog. Um, compared to the other guide dogs you've, you've had... How do, you, how do you measure the intelligence of a guide he, dog? He's the seventh, and they're all entirely different. The first one I had was a pedigree Labrador, golden Labrador, called Ruby. Ruby was a wonderful dog and an absolutely diabolical guide dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why? She didn't want to be a guide dog. <laughs> she, she just... Loved entertaining. She, I, I used to keep coins in my pocket because when I got off the bus, inevitably she'd take either a sweet or an ice cream out of the hand of the nearest child. And I, I used to have to reimburse the parents. In, in the town, I was a councillor in Sheffield, as you know, and in the town hall, you know, she'd, she'd walk past a trolley take a sandwich and hold it in her mouth until we were in the committee under the table. And I didn't know about some of this stuff. There was one terrible occasion when I was leader of the city at the time and, and we had a, a group meeting of Labour councillors. And I learnt a lot from this about not losing your temper and being pompous. I'd had enough. We'd had four hours and I'd just had enough. And I stormed out with the dog only to find that I'd taken the wrong door and I was in a very large cupboard. <laughs> and, and those of you who have dogs know that sometimes they can be very smelly. Uh, and I had to make a decision. Did I stay in there for the next hour with all the potential damage to my health? Or did I come out and... I actually came out and admitted defeat. But I didn't do it again, I can tell you. Very good. <laughs> it must, um, in terms of being a government minister. Oh, we've really jumped, haven't we? That's well, yeah, but straight, I, yeah. it was from a I'm cupboard with a dog. <laughs> <laughs> it did feel like that sometimes, actually, like being in the cupboard with a dog. <laughs> we shouldn't talk about Gordon like that. Thank you, darling. <laughs>
Um, Do you want me to tell you a story about Gordon? Oh, yeah. When we were first elected, uh, we'd inherited be being the uh, lead for the G7, as it was called. It became G8, and now it's G7 again. And I was there at this dinner at 11 Downing Street because I was Employment as well as Education Secretary, and therefore I was Social Affairs. And Gordon was Chancellor, and he was hosting the Finance uh, Chiefs. And we, we went in, and we had the dinner, and everything was going reasonably well, except Gordon had sold off Ken Clark's little store of wine and bought this appalling Australian rubbish. <laughs> so we weren't drinking too well. And after the main course, Gordon gets up to go to the loo, except all our visitors didn't know he'd gone to the loo. They thought that was the end of the dinner. So they, seriously, they all got up and went. <laughs> and, and, and that just left Ed Balls and Andrew Smith, who was a junior employment minister, and me just sat there. <laughs> And it wouldn't have been so bad if we'd still had Ken Clark's wine, but we had this <laughs> So that was the, you know, I thought, God, we're on a good one here, aren't we? <laughs> so, like, I mean, it's obviously like it leads to kind of, you know, b being blind leads, I suppose, to, you know, ending up in cupboards and things like leads that. Leads you to having a guide dog, yeah. And having a guide or dog. Or a white stick or whatever, <laughs> yeah. Um, you're a big football fan, big Sheffield Wednesday fan, and obviously they have audio description of football matches now, but you've been going to Wednesday for... Probably Millennium. long since they yeah. have. Yeah, I wasn't going <laughs> to say that long, but you've been going a long time since well, before we, they we, we, we met when North Forest were playing Wednesday, didn't we? A couple That's of, right, a couple of boxing. You beat yeah. us on Boxing Day and you yeah. didn't even have a manager. It's best not to have a manager, I've discovered. You do a lot better uh, without. I, I went last uh, Sunday evening, uh, for those watching the podcast, um, that was, what date was that? Oh, crikey, that was last weekend, really. Anyway, okay. <laughs> it was Sunday night at six o'clock, and um, it, I, I went with my family, and this time we, we were in reasonable comfort. I was recalling 50 years ago, just over 50 years ago, and I had a blind friend who's still alive, Tony, Tony Randall, and he supported Chelsea, and I supported Wednesday, and we decided, really crazily, that we would go down together, you know, we'd meet up and we'd each go individually. I didn't have a, a, a mate to go with because I was still at boarding school for the blind, but I was going from Sheffield. My mum was really horrified at this. What the hell was I doing in my late teens? I said, it'll be fine. Get on the coach, get down to London. In those days, you could ask people to directions without them thinking you were going to mug them. Because you know what it's like. Now people, you'd say to somebody, excuse me, and they shy away. Uh, as quickly as possible. Anyway, we made it, I made it to the ground. Can you imagine? No mobile phones, no method of communicating. I couldn't even ask somebody what he, you know, describe him, because how could I describe him? I could, I'd never seen him. Um, and we, we agreed to meet outside the main gate. Can you imagine this? There were 52,000 people that day. And I shout, Tony? And I shout it, Tony? And a voice comes, David? <laughs> and we found each other. And then we, we got the stewards to get us to our seats. And then, of course, there was no, as you just said, there was no audio described. There was no, there was no local radio in those days, because there was, so there was no commentary on, on the, the local radio. And so we had to blag the two people sat behind us into giving us a commentary. And I've said, and I'll say it again, 
If they're still alive, thank you for allowing us to ruin your afternoon. <laughs> and of course, Chelsea won one nil, so that was a bit of a bugger, really. Uh, and they won three nil last Sunday. So we've got some catching up to do, haven't we? And did you talk to Tony after the game last weekend? Yes, I did. Um, and he said he was quite glad Chelsea had won. And I said uh, one or two things which I won't repeat. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll get our own back eventually. You see, people say to me, what do you get out of football? Well, you don't just get the crowd noise and the emotion. You get the whole picture. You can actually... I mean, sometimes I get a picture where Sheffield Wednesday are scoring. Uh, <laughs> and then I find they haven't, you know. Sometimes I've discovered in life, and you know this in personal life as well, I won't say it any stronger than that, sometimes imagination beats the reality. <laughs> anyway, move on. I remember, I read your book on a clear day years ago. It was one of the first political books I read, a very emotional book to read. One thing that really stuck with me, the two things, firstly is the accident that your father has. Yeah. He falls into a vat of burning liquid. And one of the things you say is the, one of your earliest remem memories, and I think I'm right, is that he, he basically was sent home, even though he was, he was, he was in a bad way. And you can, you can remember the smell. Uh, yeah, he, they tried plastic surgery, but it, it didn't work, and he lived a month. So it made a big impression. It made me... Uh, determined, even more determined to change the world and we're still at it because <laughs> you don't change the world, you make a contribution and people then build on it and people forget that, they think there's a, a, a day zero and you wave a magic wand or you legislate and everything's fine, you don't, you build on what comes before the, the heroes to me of the 19th and early 20th century who had much greater challenges than even we have today and saw their way through it and kept battling and kept going when things got really bad. And I thought, you know, I've just got to do something. And when I had the chance briefly to be in charge of health and safety, I like to think I made a contribution to reinforcing that, including, by the way, something that the Labour government never gets credit for, which is banning smoking in public places, which has been transformational, not just in people's health, but in their general well-being. You don't mm. come out of places now, like this, smelling like a kipper. Uh, you don't breathe in other people's smoke. You don't get heart and lung disease because somebody else has decided that they're, they're light of a weed in front of you. So, you know, it's made an enormous difference. And I was very proud to be one of the five cabinet ministers arguing that at the time. And I was up partly arguing it from the job I had then on behalf of those who worked in these institutions. Mm. It wasn't the choice of the people who were coming in to the club or restaurant or cafe or whatever. It was those who were having to serve them as well. Do you think it was, do you think that, not to dwell on it, but do you think what your father went through and what you went through as a result is what politicised you? There's always been a theory that um, politicians who lose close relatives early are more successful. I think the various presidents, Tony Blair, yourself, that, that it gives one a sense of injustice yeah, that's sort of overcoming. A, there is a theory. It applies to artists and musicians as well, that you, you know, people do well out of misery. I'm not sure about that. I, I'm not entirely convinced. I think I was already... My grandfather, who lived with us, who also died actually in quite difficult circumstances in a geriatric ward, because my mum had breast cancer when it was almost always terminal. 
uh, and pulled through, but she couldn't look after him any longer. Uh, and he died in circumstances, again, where I said, if I can get to a place where I can abolish these awful institutions like workhouses, and we did. When I, when I became leader of the council, we, we did a deal with the health service and we set up new homes and support services at home and we did away with that place that my grandfather died in. So you can't, I'm only saying this because you've got to believe you really can make a difference and people pocket the difference, rightly, because they move on. You know, life, I said earlier, life moves on. But when you pocket it, at least give a bit of credit that people have given an example of what can be done. And in those circumstances, my, my task was to say, learn from it. Now, my granddad used to read me what was called the Daily Herald. Not, nobody here will remember it, but it was the forerunner to... Uh, God, it was I think a couple of people do, actually, David. <laughs> uh, can you believe the sun took over from the Daily Herald? Anyway, uh, you know, <laughs> you win some and you lose some. <laughs> um, the Daily, he used to read me the Daily Herald. He, he politicised me, and so did a history teacher who was actually himself a member of the British Communist Party. But he taught me that you can learn, you don't live in it, but you can learn so much from history. And if we can, then we, we learn not to make the same mistakes. And the problem at the moment is that we're not learning from history, are we? We're kind of reliving it rather than learning from it. It is. A, it, it does feel a, a very difficult time. Perhaps a, you know. I think that's about the understatement. <laughs> We've got a prime minister who's just revelled and rejoiced in her policy being defeated. Is it not? Did you say this to the audience earlier? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, you curious. can't make it up. You really can't make it up. It's a bit like. Uh, it's a bit like Knott's Forest playing Sheffield Wednesday and we're winning 4-0 and you decide to join us. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, 6-0 because the goalkeeper's on his own and we both claim victory. I mean, that's what happened. It's just bizarre. It, it's deeply bizarre. I mean, if, if, if you're advising the Labour Party at the moment, do you think... Do you think they should? Um, they campaign? wouldn't take my advice at the moment. But well, maybe they should. W would you advise for a, a people's vote or a referendum on the deal? I, I didn't think so, but over the last four weeks, I came to the conclusion that with the diabolical mess we're in, the only thing we could do is to have a second vote and give people options, and the option to stay in would be one of them. I, I'm really sad about what happened with. Yvette Cooper's amendment, I think had she not, I mean, no, you know, you, you, when you're a superannuated politician, you understand why people don't consult you, and that's fine, because we all move on like we do with our families. Uh, you know, kids don't take notice of their parents. But why make, make the amendment nine months for delay rather than three, which might at least have got closer to the 23 votes by which it was defeated? Because the, the, the votes that took place have placed the Brexiteers back in the driving seat. That's mm -hmm. the problem. Um, at, the, at the time of the votes, those of us who thought this is a total mess, let's try and get out of it by going back to the people and persuading them, were, I think, on a roll. And now we're not. Uh, it's reversed it. And so is this, you know, they had another thing that wasn't voted on called Kit Moat House. I mean, can you imagine an ex advisor to Boris Johnson 
having something named after him other than a public lavatory. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, and what it was, was we'll delay a hard Brexit for a bit longer. And some people who didn't want a hard Brexit fell for it, can you imagine? And you want to say, could we have a tutorial on real politics, on statescraft, on seeing what's round the corner, rather than, oh yeah, that sounds a good idea. I think we'll go for that one. You know, and this is serious politics, isn't it? And they're paid. Well, professionals. I mean, some would say that the, the sort of greatest era in, in, in political management and, and, and execution was the period that you were in government for. Some so hated it because of what happened over Iraq. Yeah. And I get that, I understand. But right, thank you, the dog, <laughs> for those who didn't hear it on the podcast, the dog intervened in only the way a dog can. <laughs> so Bali. And, and it was a groan to say, oh God, not Iraq again. <laughs> She's had too much time in the lake. I mean, bar. to allow Iraq to wipe out everything else is a major historic mistake because it means you don't give credit where credit's due and you don't build on what we achieved and celebrate it and then get on with doing better. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In terms of uh, perhaps other mistakes that were made during that area, you, know, you hear people say, and I completely disagree with it, but it's quite trendy to basically blame that government for a lot of other things that have happened. So people talk about the, the way the Labour Party's gone or even, or even Brexit itself. Um, I had a conversation with Adam Bolton. He said, well, you know, Tony Blair summoned the EU genie, you know, by threatening to have a, a, a referendum on, I think it was the Treaty of Lisbon. Um, is there, do you think, any culpability with the, with the new Labour era for, for, the, for the mess we find ourselves in now? A bit, yeah. But you, you can't wipe out what we did and where we were and the fact that we didn't regulate sufficiently. Thank you very much. Um, we didn't regulate sufficiently in terms of the financial markets and the consequences in 2008 and the global, but it was a global meltdown. I went to America just shortly after this happened. I was in a shop. I was talking to a young man who said, we're in a terrible mess over here. You know, we've had this subprime mortgage fiasco and uh, the banks have let us down. And I said, yeah, it's the same in Europe. He said, what? I said, yeah, it's the same in Europe. This is a global uh, impact. He said, I didn't know that. I just was blaming the government. <laughs> and I thought, when I got back, what did I get? Just blaming the government. 
And what really got me, I mean, I'll, let me on a roll now, okay. <laughs> okay, the, the Lib Dems were responsible for letting people down over tuition fees. You know, they, they didn't tell it as it was. But their biggest, biggest betrayal was that they went into that 2010 election as anti-austerity. They promised six billion extra spending and then they not only agreed to an immediate budget that cut that amount out of the public spending and everything ap afterwards, but they almost became more celebratory and more vicious against us about it than the Tories. And we ended up with a coalition government that just lied. It lied because it pretended that our government were responsible for the global meltdown. It lied about the fact that uh, austerity was going to balance the budget by 2015. It looks like 2028 now. We, we said it couldn't be done and that we'd continue as far as we could investing whilst desperately trying to balance the book. Nobody remembers that now. Nobody remembers it. And I understand because you move on and you've got a promise for the future, not the past. Mm. But it would be helpful if sometimes people just remembered what was said and what was done and the lies that were told, including over Brexit. I think some people do, but just perhaps not enough. Yeah. Not enough people do. But and, and sometimes we fail. I mean, we failed over Brexit. Those of us who were in favour of staying in, we, we, we failed in that campaign abysmally. Admittedly, the glorious, saintly George Osborne was in charge of the <laughs> main campaign. He wasn't responsible, of course, for the referendum. He was totally against it. We, we learn now, don't we? Um, this is the man who was in charge of austerity and still believes that it, it worked. But, mm -hmm. you know, you move on, but you learn from it. So my message tonight, really, for all of those here and on the podcast is get stuck in. We, 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 we did some good things, of which I'm very proud. We messed up on some things, which you should learn from. But get stuck in, because that's the only way in your own lives, in your own community, whatever you can do, because you can't sit back and say somebody else should do something if you're not prepared to do it. Uh, you certainly did get stuck in, uh, and in 1997 became Secretary of State for Education and Employment, yeah. other than DFEE. Um, uh, I've, I wrote to you at the time. Um, you didn't. I did, I wrote to... Did I reply? Uh, you did. Um, Thank God for that. <laughs> I wrote to every new cabinet minister and asked them for a signed photo, and I've got them, my mum's got them all in their house. And what's, uh, of all the people that should understand, is that really sad? Well, you've got to be careful with signed photos, because you don't know, people are going to pin them up and throw things at them. <laughs> you've got to be careful about that. Well, I, um, uh, no, you're not going. The dog's got up. <laughs> um, not yet. But what, Lay but down. Occasionally, when I go back to my mum's house and, and go through them, is what's sort of in terms of political nerdery is not just the photos and how people look different now to what they did then and you know remembering cabinet ministers that aren't here anymore and everything else is the departments that no longer exist uh, so um, I'd, I've got some uh, math headed notepaper before DEFRA the DFEE became the DFES and then uh, children's schools and families and now it's about to be in education again all these things and it's quite a nice history of politics at that time but going through it you realise how many, even in 1997, huge figures Labour had in a way that, that were big at the time in a way that this government doesn't have and, and the previous government didn't have. I mean, did it feel like at the time you were part of a, a sort of a, almost the, the perfect starting 11? You don't 
you don't feel what you see with a historical perspective. I mean, the people that I looked back and, and uh, were interested in because I'd read their books were Richard Crossland, uh, Anthony Crossland, Richard Crossman, yeah. Dennis Healy, Barbara Castle, who, who, all of whom I'd actually met. Um, I wrote to Richard Crossman in the 1960s when I was very young and he wrote back, you, you can tell in those days they didn't have very many facilities because he was in government and he wrote a handwritten letter. I know it's handwritten, I know it was read to me and I <laughs> couldn't read it, but it was pointed out to me, it was handwritten. Incidentally, I did get a handwritten letter from Margaret Thatcher. It wasn't about a human being or somebody in poverty or somebody who's, who'd lost their home or was ill. It was when my dog died. Now, I was grateful to her, seriously, I thought, well, at least there's a heart somewhere beating uh, in there. But it was interesting that she was concerned about the dog dying rather than what was happening to the people in my constituency. Do you remember what it said? It said, uh, dear David, I know you will miss, it was something like, I know you will miss your four-legged friend very greatly and I wanted you to know um, that I sympathise. I thought it was nice. Have you kept any stuff like that? I didn't burn it, actually. I did keep it. <laughs> I've got a little archive being developed at the University of Sheffield, and uh, it's in there. It um, must be so... It's interesting. Why did I keep it? Interesting. I'm asking the audience, why did I keep it? You know... Some prime minister, I suppose. The, well, I detested everything politically that she stood for. I admired her tenacity and leadership, but everything that she was doing to my city and the region around me, and I was involved, obviously at the time of the miners' strike, for mm. instance, because I was one of the three members of the Miners' Solidarity Fund. This was the official fund, not the slush fund that Arthur Scargill had. Uh, it was the properly audited fund. Uh, we, we were really, and, and you're from Nottinghamshire, so yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's a history here. I, I was very close to those who really detested Margaret Thatcher. But it is interesting that you get a letter like that and you keep it, because oh, we're human beings, aren't we? Well, that's it. That's why, I mean, I carried the tradition on into the coalition years, so I've got signed photos of oh, Theresa May God. and people like that. But, uh, just, I just think, once I got in the habit I've, of doing it... I don't mind you doing it, but to say it to your mums, that's the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I will get... I had them framed for a while, so I think I had you up on my bedroom wall. Um, no, come on. I did going genuinely. too far. We're going too far here. I don't know. Do you... I said Graham Norton at the beginning. I didn't, you know, expect <laughs> you to follow it all the way through. <laughs> Move on. Well, genuinely, Move on. I, had, I, had, I had some football ones as well. I had Stuart Pearce, I had Steve Coogan, and I had you, Gordon, Tony. Um, who else did I have up there? You've Robin Cook. Oh, yeah. I had them framed on my bedroom. Tell you about, I'll tell you about Robin. I, I, was in, I went on a family holiday to Lanzarote, and uh, I, I was just walking across the top of the beach, and somebody rushed up the beach, uh, forgive me, but he had an Irish accent. He said, oh, I know you, I know you. He said, it's wonderful to meet you, Mr. Cook. And I said, there's two problems. He said, what's that? I said, firstly, I'm not Robin Cook, but secondly, he died three months ago. <laughs> it was awful. Anyway, <laughs> go on. Well, I, I suppose it's quite odd to, to, to meet someone that I had in my bedroom. It makes you sound like I had a crush on it. What I meant was... <laughs> 
Give me a hand, give me a hand, <laughs> Matt. No, come on, move on, because the audience want to ask some questions. As well. Uh, <laughs> well, I was going to ask about your, your period in, uh, in education where yeah. you basically came up with Sure Start. Which I, lo I, I loved education. It was a great four years. Sure Start, which was the very, very early years when a child was born, trying to reverse the inequality into which they were born. So it wasn't just about the professionals, health visitors, uh, child experts, you know, all of that. It was also about mobilising the community to be part of the strength. So communities have enormous strength. The people talk about resilience uh, and tenacity and all this kind of stuff. And actually the people really up against it are the ones who have that, don't they? You've got yeah. four, five kids, the blokes left, you're left struggling, trying to bring them up on your own, often in a high-rise flat. That, that, those are people, aren't they, who have, got, have really got it. Yeah. Um, and we were trying to support them and reinforce them. And one of the things I'm also bitter about with the coalition and the Tory government was that they really completely destroyed it. Education maintenance allowances for 16-year-olds whose parents didn't have the wherewithal. That was something I was proud of. I used child, to get one. I got one, thanks child, to you. Well, very, I didn't know you were that young. <laughs> child Trust Fund, which again has been done away with, which was to try and rebalance the asset divide in our country. If you live in London in the South East and your grandparents or your uncle and aunt leave you a property, it's like winning the lottery. Yeah. If you live in a rented flat, and your family have got no assets, you're stuffed. And so you don't have the bank of mum and dad. We thought if we could build up an asset so that every 18-year-old had a nest egg mm. and we would put money in as the government, and if people wanted to put money in, either as family or as church or club or whatever, they could do that as well. And I thought it was an act of absolute meanness. It was done away with by David Laws, who was the very brief Chief right. Secretary to the Treasury, Liberal Democrat in the coalition government, to save £500 million, which was peanuts. And some of those children have still got the Child Trust Fund, but without it, those without assets are struggling. And it could have been used for university education, for propping up being an apprentice, or putting a deposit down you know, to get into the property market. I, I, my only regret was that we didn't extend, you know, it was going to be worth 10,000 at, at those price, in those days, at that price. We should have been much more ambitious mm. uh, and made it much more extensive. And then I think that the people would have warmed to it. I totally agree. I, I thought it was a heartbreaking decision to get rid of it. Um, you, you also served as Home Secretary. Uh, no, it was a bit tough. Well, you had a different reputation at, well, the, I was only at in the Home Office. I was only in there for three months before the attack took place on the World Trade Centre and 3,000 people were killed. And we had to respond to that and provide the security. But what, what people also forget is the legislation on domestic violence and victims, the Sexual Offences Act, which brought up today the, uh, what we call the Oscar Wilde clause because the, it, wasn't, it was unfinished business. It wasn't just about the change to uh, uh, civil partnerships and things of that sort. It was actually about the way in which people who were gay were treated entirely different under the law uh, with their behaviour. So we, di we did that. Um, we also 
took action on what became known as child uh, exploitation and changed the law and reinforced it at a time when we didn't know anything like the extent of what was happening out there but we knew that something had to to be done so yeah I was tough and I make no excuses for it because if you live in a and you're brought up in and you represent an area which is bedeviled by crime and where people are their lives are ruined by drugs and drug pushers then getting tough wasn't something that was uh, outside their experience this was something that they were demanding of yeah. me and they used to say to me at advice surgeries is anyone listening do any of you take any notice of the kind of lives that we're living you know none of you really get it do you and I used to say I'm trying I'm really I was brought up here I'm trying to understand what it's like and to put myself in your position that's what I tried to do because uh, one of the things the coalition got rid of also was ASBOs well they sort of changed the name and meddled about with it they weren't perfect uh, and we tried to introduce something which said we won't just put an antisocial behavior order on you will actually offer you support and help as well. It had to be a two-hander in terms of what you were doing. But again, it, it was only a handful of people could cause total havoc in a community. And when communities get irate about what's happening to them, when they think nobody's listening, when they think that nobody gives a damn, that's when they turn to being Brexiteers. That's when they turn to being... Uh, a million hits on national action platforms yeah. you know that's where you've got to understand that you're driving people into the arms of the loonies when, so the period during government obviously this sort of uh, huge period in British history you're a leading member of, of, of the the Blair and then uh, to some extent the, the Brown years um, in terms of their relationship did it ever affect the work you did? Did you ever sort of pick on the tension between the yes. two? Yes, I mean, I was fortunate because I, I got on with Tony Blair very well and I could count on his support. And I liked to uh, Gordon and, on a personal level, got on with him and Sarah extremely well. I, I stayed in their house in Scotland twice. But he was extremely difficult to deal with when you didn't agree with him. I could disagree with Tony... In fact, once I disagreed with him and we had a real go. And he got up and he said, I've got something in the cupboard. You'll enjoy it more than I will. And he gave me a bottle of wine. And I had to hide it under my coat going out of Downing Street because <laughs> it would have been photographed. Can you imagine the sort of little diary story? Blunkett goes in in a rage. Blunkett comes out with a bottle of wine. <laughs> um, and he gave me a really... I, mean, I haven't drunk it yet. From the 90, I mean, can you imagine, uh, uh, from the 1980s, this, this wine. So it, it's, it's, in fact, I might put it on eBay. Um, <laughs> I, won't, I won't, honestly, Tony, I won't put it on eBay. What was that? I will, I will drink it. But, but we could have a row. Very difficult to row with Gordon without falling out really big time. So I was, I was privileged because I could always say to Tony, will you intervene, will you support if I was falling out, particularly over money and budgets and things like that. Uh, but Gordon was a, a, and remains a very powerful, clever politician. I just wish he'd been allowed to play a bigger part on the international stage. 
In terms of your own ambition, then, you get yourself to Home Secretary, you're holding one of the four big offices of state. At some point, particularly when the Blair years were starting to come to an end, you must have fancied a, a tilt at the leadership yourself. There was a period where this was sort of mooted. Two, two things affected me. Firstly, I absolutely sodded up my private life, okay? I mean, I did. It was my uh, fault. It's all right now. I've got a wonderful 16-year-old. He's a fantastic young man. But it bogged things up. And it was, at a, you know, we were at a time of Victorian uh, looking at other people and mm. condemning them. But I, don't, I don't want to mention anybody else, but at least I took responsibility, unlike some other politicians, uh, which I'm very proud. I would, I would do it again. Mm. The second was I couldn't see. And I, I think it's really difficult to explain this. It will in time be possible for someone with a defined disability to be Prime Minister here. It was possible in the 30s for someone to be President of the United States who most of the time used a wheelchair, but nobody saw him in it. It was not talked about, it was not the thing. When he stood at the rostrum, I'm talking about uh, Roosevelt, when he stood at the rostrum, he held himself up by the rostrum and developed the most incredible muscles in his arms. It wasn't the thing to admit that he had a severe mm. disability. I wonder, I mean, it may be possible now. I didn't think it was 15 years ago. And the third factor was, I was a bit of a, um, I, I, I was wonderful, I honestly was good at developing a team of ministers and advisors and the people at the top of the civil service. I was terrible with my cabinet colleagues. I was arrogant. I didn't think through how they saw what I was like in a way I should have done. I always wanted my own way like a small, you know, little child. You stamp your feet and get in a tantrum and go around to see Tony and say, Oh, Tony, help me. I'm not getting, I'm not getting my own way, you know. Uh, thank you. Uh, get down, Barley. <laughs> he thought I was talking about him then. Um, and that was, that was a big mistake. And if I had my time again, which I won't, of course, I, I would do things differently. And that makes a difference to how people see you and whether other colleagues would back you. And without that, without the organisation internally, you're not going to do it. And, which and is why Gordon became Prime Minister. He had the most fantastic internal organisation. He did. I mean, it's quite hard to reflect on yourself like that and be so candid. I think very few people, let alone politicians, would ever be so honest about their, their sort of previous behaviour. Uh, but lots of politicians behave like that, and some of them do quite well. I mean, I suppose two things. One is, what really struck me about the Cameron era was his reluctance to sack cabinet ministers. And if it's one criticism you could say of the new Labour era was that any scandal or whiff of it and people were just immediately mm. gone for the sake of the party. Maybe that wasn't necessarily the right thing for public life um, or, or for the country. Um, uh, well, let's firstly deal with that. I mean, do you think uh, that the new Labour area was too uh, reckless in terms of getting rid of talented cabinet ministers? Sen sensitive to things, yes. I think there's a big difference in terms of what happens in your private life and what happens in terms of your public behaviour. Mm. I think if you've got your fingers in the till, which is why the scandal over MPs' allowances had such an impact on people, 
then people take a different view. If, if I'd been involved with the allowances scandal, which I wasn't, my constituents <coughs> would have been horrified. Yeah. I mean, they would have detested me for it from their background, from what they were in. The idea that I would have had my fingers in the till. So there is a big, big difference. And we were a bit Victorian about it. You know, we were a bit oversensitive. While what was going on on the other side was nobody's business. Again, I won't mention who, but you know. You know, if somebody walks... Oh, no, I won't say that. Oh, well, say it and then... No, it's just that, you know, if somebody walks into a nursery class and they say, good morning, children, and half of them say, good morning, Daddy, then that's a different matter. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. Um, I suppose the other thing I was going to ask is, are, are you being a bit too harsh on yourself in retrospect, do you think? No. And, and what was the product of that? <laughs> what was the catalyst? No, the, the reason is because other people can learn from it. You know, it's really important. I did, I did a crazy thing at Christmas. Took part in the Christmas edition of Oldies University Challenge on behalf of Sheffield University as an alumni of Sheffield University. Yeah. And when we first have to introduce ourselves, I said, and I meant it, that, you know, I was now professor of politics in practice because I wanted young people to learn from my mistakes as well as <laughs> things that I did well. And we can. And we should. But the thing is, what, what I remember about you is I loved you being a tough home secretary. So, like, it's almost like when Oasis talk about their albums now, and some of them weren't very good. I'm like, don't slag it off. I still like it. Like, I loved David Blunkett, Home Secretary. Well, I, I thought you were brilliant and hard. Well, we were, but crime reduced by 50% and people felt safer. And when they feel safer and secure, you can then try and open their minds. You, you can then have a conversation about why inward migration is not a, an alloyed disaster. Why, why they should welcome change mm. and difference. But you can't do that when they're absolutely up in arms because they hate everything that's going on around them. I, I suppose in a way what, what was getting out is you were sort of perceived as being anti-civil liberties, which I, I, I always thought was slightly unfair. Libertarianism I was against. Not civil liberties, but liberta libertarianism is hedonism. It is anything goes and we couldn't give a damn what the consequences are or how it affects other people or are they seers and therefore how they react. That's what I was against. Um, was it civil libertarianism or, or, or libertarianism in general? No, it's, libertar it's, it's a kind of looking down your nose at people who are worried about where the bread's coming from or people pushing drugs at the end of the road. That, that, that's what I, you know, if, if you live in an environment where you could take crack and somebody will see you through it, yeah. different matter altogether. But in terms of things like ID cards and, uh, you know, fights with the judiciary about implementing legislation and things like that, you were seen as quite tough in that regard, and I think in a good way. Well, ID cards was interesting because I'd have got it... Well, it, it, we did get it through. It just got overturned in 2010. We presented it very badly. I mean, what we should have said is that every, every adult, everyone over 16, would have a passport. 82% of the population, which is the largest density in the world, because we've always been outward-looking historically and a trading nation, 82% of the population have a passport already. All we should have done is to translate the, uh, the database for passports, made it more secure, and in, 
in indicated to people all we wanted was the same information that you provide for a passport and then people could have chosen to have a, a small card which I incidentally did use on overseas travel to France and Poland uh, it was a much more secure document than my passport because it was properly biometric yeah um, and it didn't do any harm to anybody but we, we got the presentation uh, badly wrong and then you could have had a, an amnesty of people who were here but shouldn't have been here. Then you'd have had a better situation in terms of uh, reflecting to the population that people weren't drawing down on public services or employment who shouldn't be. You mm. could have had a much more open, transparent and honest debate about it. I always just thought from an admin point of view it made things easier, quite apart from uh, security, uh, that to just have one thing rather than to have, you know, if you could... Opening your bank balance, for, uh, opening a bank account, for instance. Yeah, but if you, you could... Go through absolute palaver for a young person opening yeah. a bank account. But if you could have everything on there, all your details, I suppose then if people steal them, that's the problem, isn't it? Well, it always is. But you could... My argument was that you couldn't steal the identity more than one. If you, if, if you presented yourself as a person with your biometric then that was you forever. So if somebody, somebody couldn't have multiple identities, which they do. Yeah. You, you are who you were. So did you, did you I, I get the sense you sort of railed against the idea that you were a tough Home Secretary at the time. No, I, I didn't mind being. <laughs> the, the, the only problem for me was that people came up to me and said, I really like you as a Home Secretary. And then the next breath they'd say, but of course I'll never vote for your party. And that wasn't what I wanted to hear. I wanted people to come up to me and say, I like what you're doing and I'm a great Labour supporter. But then I suppose... So, there we are. So, it, and then just, just in terms of it, the Prime Minister thing, it, did, you, did you want it? I wanted the power, but I didn't want the, the job. The job is a terrible job. Yeah. I mean, in my kinder moments, I really do feel sorry for Theresa May. <laughs> I mean, it is a terrible job. It's 18 hours a day, seven days a week, with very little respite and very few people you can rely on. Um, you know, you lose contact with the people that you need contact with, yeah. even as Home Secretary. I, I, when I came out of the Home Office after three and a half years, Friends of mine said, welcome back. I said, what do you mean? They said, we lost you. You know, you were distant. We talked to you on the phone, but you weren't who you were. And I thought that was very sad. It is, but I'm sure people have to be understanding about that, don't they? You're a powerful person. Well, my, my, my family time. were, my, my, my boys. I mean, I'm remarried since then. Um, my wife, Margaret, is a GP. She puts up with me, <laughs> so, somehow. We've been together for 13 and a half years now, and... Uh, that's great, but my, my, my older sons had to put up with it and I'll always be grateful to them because they, they had to put up with a great deal. They had to put up with... I wasn't, I wasn't um, tapped at the time of the phone tapping. I wasn't tapped, but everyone around me was. Including your sons? Yeah. And so they had to put up with hell. My God. And that's why I got the damages for, you know, and for the family. Good. Uh, but it doesn't bring it back. Uh, what, it, what it also did 
was to create suspicion. People have talked about this who have been uh, phone tapped. Yeah. That people can't work out where the information's coming from, so everybody starts to suspect suspect everybody else. Well, uh, Paul Gascoigne had a nervous breakdown because he yeah. thought his his close family and friends were, were yeah. leaking information yeah. to the news of the world. It was a very very wicked thing <coughs> to do, and totally immoral. All I can say is that out of all the people who were involved, and, and he was a scapegoat. But my evidence, because I kept all the detail, yeah. my evidence got the only uh, senior journalist who did not admit what they'd done um, to a prison sentence. That was Andy Coulson. And it was my evidence that did it. So all the people who said, why aren't you railing personally much more than you are? I said, I'm trying to get on with doing yeah. something about it. And he was the fall guy, because there were lots of other people involved. Uh, and he took the rap for other people. But, um, rightly so. So, yeah. uh, let's open up the uh, floor to questions. So, if you clearly indicate, let us know your name. And if you can have one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, right. we'll get around as many as we can. We can do it. Uh, so, if, we could, if any, I can't really, Ah, yes. So, the uh, chap right at the end there, if we could uh, pass the um, microphone down, that'd be uh, lovely. So here we go. Hi, David. Here. Um, you talk about the sort of the talent that you had in your generation of Labour MPs when you came into power. Obviously, where do you see the sort of current crop of talent at the moment? Obviously, with the current government, the state that it is, and Labour not exactly performing to the way that a lot of opposing parties would see it. Where do you sort of see the talent that we have at the moment that we can look to as a kind of new generation of um, what we want to see? I think there's some great young people. I think there's some. Uh, the, I, I'm not a politically correct person for the sake of it. But I think there's some great young women. I think that Lisa Nandy is a great potential yeah. for the future. I think there are some brave people on the Tory benches like Heidi Allen. Um, I, I, th th there, there are people who just need supporting and encouraging. And I think they will they will shine through. There are a lot. I mean, it does seem that most of the talent is on the back benches at the moment rather than at the front. Yeah, um, it's it's inevitable that if you're in government, or even if you're on the opposition front bench, your shadow. I have to remind people when I was when I was a shadow that you know you're not in the sun, are you? You're a shadow. <laughs> you're not actually in office of any sort. You're in the sun. But, that's actually but fun. if you're if you're in the shadow. Ministerial team, yeah, okay. <laughs> or you're in government, you're inevitably bound in, aren't you? You're bound in. So yeah. you're going to show through generally better if you can speak your own mind and, and, and do that well. Right, okay, have we got any more questions? Uh, anyone from over here? Yes, just there, and then just here. Thanks, Matt. Um, maybe, going back to the University Challenge, experience like on there, <coughs> having the uh, dulcet tones of Jeremy Paxton asking the questions. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Um, I mean, you, your mind goes blank. Uh, we, we buried, Paul Mason was on with me. He's a oh, wow. alumni of Sheffield University, uh, ex-economics from, uh, from Newsnight BBC, and, yeah. then, and then Channel 4. And of course, he, he's, a, he's a Corbynister and, and, and I don't think I am. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, and we got on absolutely fine. I wanted him to say, I nominate Blunkett. That's what I wanted him to say. Uh, 
and, and we had a, a properly gender balanced team and all of that. But we got to a question, which was about somebody who had written a book and, uh, in 99 about Europe and got elected to Westminster in 2005 and lost his seat in 2007. God help me, I should have known, shouldn't I? I pressed the button, I got the wrong one. And it who, was Nick Clegg. And who did you think it was? Well, Manchester had got out of time and mumbled Douglas Carswell. And I thought, that sounds right. <laughs> Big mistake. <laughs> Taking notice of anything from Manchester is a, <laughs> clearly a mistake. They, they had some great people, D David Edgar uh, and David Aronovich were on their team. And David Aronovich told the story that he'd been on before, 40 years before, when he was a student. Wow. And they were notorious because their team then answered every, they decided that this was a bourgeois program <laughs> and was asking bourgeois questions. So they answered every question with the name of an ultra-left historical figure. <laughs> so it was like, um, you know, what is the equation of this, that and the other? Karl Marx, you know, <laughs> and say that, Lenin. You know, Gramsci. You know, it was, it, and apparently the whole thing ground to a standstill. Anyway, he didn't do it this time, <laughs> but he did wear a silly hat. Good on him. Uh, yes, there was, a, there was a question down here. How did your experience of running Sheffield affect how you took your cabinet responsibilities in those early days? Because thinking of the incoming cabinet in 1997, um, you were probably one of the few who had experience mm. of making things happen in a large, complex organisation. Yeah, it was very helpful. Uh, firstly, in understanding how things work, how they weren't called civil servants at local government, but the equivalent, how you, your relationship with them mattered and how you ensured that what happened was what you wanted to happen rather than what was on the shelf that they had been wanting to do for some time. Secondly, to understand... Uh, the, the, what was potentially the dangers and, and how you dealt with those. It didn't wipe out everything because you're on a learning curve all the time because life's like that. Every day you should learn something new. So you were learning as you went along. But I valued that enormously in terms of how, how to exercise influence because it isn't power, but to in exercise real influence uh, and to be able to get things done and to focus on making sure that things get done rather than just being there and hovering there and being a cabinet minister, which regrettably I think sometimes happens. Well, I, I can understand how it happens. One of the frustrations that particularly prime ministers talk about is getting into Downing Street and realising there are no levers there. They're actually making... Yeah. Well, there are lots of levers in Downing Street. Well, there, uh, are, there are in Downing Street. There aren't necessarily in departments. My predecessor, Gillian Shepherd who'd been Education Employment Secretary, wrote a little book called Shepherd's Watch. And, and she says, page 153 if you're interested, <laughs> that she didn't have any levers to pull. And I was determined that immediately we'd have levers to pull. So we set up a Standards and Effectiveness Unit and we brought people in from outside. They didn't have, believe this or not, in the education section of the department, they had no one who'd been a teacher. My God. So we had to bring... But they had all been pupils. We brought... Yeah, they've been pupils. <laughs> like all of us have lived in a house, so we know about housing, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so we brought people in who've been head teachers, been teachers, been local authority education officers, and, and brought them into the unit to try and ensure 
A, that we got good advice and up-to-date advice, and secondly, they knew where the bodies lied and they knew, knew how to implement. Okay, there was another question at the bar. And then is there anyone on the balcony that would like to ask a question? There usually is. No, not tonight. My, my turn? Thank you. Yes. Um, our country seems pretty split between Tory Labour, pro-Brexit, anti-Brexit, whatever else. Um, what's our chances of having a leader who believes in something that we can believe in as well? Well, to be fair to, to the leader of the Labour Party, I think he does um, believe. It, it, the, the question is translating it and bringing it into the world of today. I, m my wife and I went to a country in the Gulf called Oman at the beginning of January because it was a special birthday. And what struck me about what is a really interesting country was the tension between modernity and fundamentalism of, of, and, and, and the historic culture. We've got two divides in this country, between the parties, obviously. What happened in the 2017 election was that Labour mopped up, not all, but most of the anti-Tory vote. That's why we did so well. The, the, the Greens, a great chunk of the Liberal Democrat vote, some of UKIP, ironically, um, a little, uh, and some people who'd not voted. And that was, that's where we got to the 40%. The anti-Labour vote coalesced around the Tories and instead of uh, getting all the UKIP vote, part of it abstained. And she thought they'd get the majority of the UKIP yeah. vote, but they abstained. And the second divide is this one over the future of our country and Brexit, which splits right across parties. Okay, the majority of Labour Party members and MPs are pro staying in, they just are. But, the, but in key areas, Labour voters are not. Mm. And what worries me is that unless we understand the underlying reason for that and tackle the reasons, then we're always going to be, even after, if this happens and we leave the European Union, those problems, those, that anger, that alienation, that antipathy to establishment and everything to do with it will still be there because we haven't solved the problems we just won't have europe to blame anymore do you feel like a member of the establishment well i am i'm in the house of bloody lords <laughs> i mean that makes you a member of the establishment but i don't feel like it of course i don't when i when i walk when i walk the dog in sheffield people don't come up to me and say hello lord blanket they say hello david you know, and in fact, if I used Lord Blunkett in Sheffield, they'd punch me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I don't feel, I try, I've always tried to stay in touch. And it's not easy. When you're in government, when you're in the Westminster bubble, when, you know, other pressures are around you, it's quite hard to remain connected. And when you are connected, to explain to people why you disagree with them, honestly, and why you won't go down the line they want you to take. And to explain to young people that in a democracy you don't always win what you want. But that doesn't mean you take your bat home. No. Um, it's another big question as well as Brexit. I put it to all my guests at the end of these interviews. Uh, this means we're at the end. It does. I'm quite relieved. <laughs> <laughs> What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? Well, it's not walking through a field, that's for sure, <laughs> of, uh, of grain. 
What's the naughtiest thing I've ever done? We did some daft things when I was at this school for the blind, this boarding school, because we were bored and fed up. And believe it or not, they didn't do external exams, so I had to go to night school and day release to get to university. It was crazy, crazy. But we'd do things like letting, you know, waiting till the head teacher was coming along and then let bangers off right behind <laughs> them. Uh, we'd, we'd do things like cooking potatoes, cutting potatoes up and cooking them on a little gas stove. I mean, I think back now, this was in a bathroom where it was all wood. <laughs> and we could have burnt the whole place down. But you just had to do crazy things to stay alive and to make life worth living. And I'd, I'd, I mean, I wouldn't do the potato bit again, but <laughs> I'd, I'd do things again that were crazy. <laughs> You'd set a few bangers off these days. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's A, getting to know who to let the bangers off behind, and secondly, to make sure that they actually know why you've let the banger off. And sometimes we let off at each other when actually we, we don't disagree fundamentally. I'll just finish on this. I don't disagree with the leadership of the Labour Party about uh, re-socialising re the railways or even water. Uh, or anti-austerity. I don't disagree with them about that. I just disagree about the method of getting into government and doing something sensible. David, Lord Blunkett, uh, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, before we show our appreciation for a, a truly uh, historic and wonderful guest, um, uh, next month we have Johnny Mercer down here, the Tory MP, the rising star, who, if you go on YouTube, you will see naked in a soap commercial, uh, a former military man, good-looking chap. I've never done that. Good luck. <laughs> Um, but for now, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for all coming. Uh, but please, a huge thank you for the amazing David Blunkett. Well, there you go, David Blunkett. What a titan of British politics and what an honour it was uh, to sit opposite him for, for, for an hour or so and, and, and just talk to him about his life and his politics and his political views. He's one of the warmest people I've ever met. Uh, and he has such a... He's a very, very sweet man, as well as being a ferocious intellect and a passionate politician. And I just come away thinking he was a little bit too hard on himself, really. But everyone, I suppose, has to, particularly at the end of a political career, or still in the House of Lords, but when you've stopped being at the top, I suppose, has to reassess uh, why things happen and the way they happened and your role in them. So I think it's refreshingly honest of him to be so... Uh, Blunt about himself, but I thought he was a bit too hard on himself, really. Um, but just what an amazing man. And uh, his dog, Barley, is gorgeous as well. It's just, it's just, he it was one of the ones where I really wanted to just say to him, oh, we should, we should meet up every week and go for a pint. You know, I just wanted to spend so much more time with him, but he was superb. Um, you can email the podcast, politicalparty at gmail.com. Uh, and an, I get regular emails, all of which are, are gratefully received. Uh, Jordan Byrne uh, got in touch, and thanks for the podcast. Uh, uh, it's a pleasure, Jordan. Um, he said, I've been a fan for years. I was late off the mark for booking tickets in Salford, but I'll keep an eye out for anyone reselling and hopefully see you there. I've had a few emails about Salford. That sold out very quickly. I'm going to Chorley later in the tour, which I don't think is too far from there. So um, if that's not too much to ask... 
uh, buy tickets for the Chorley date instead if you're in the sort of Salford, Manchester area. Uh, Sarah Jane got in touch. She said uh, she listens in Adelaide. Uh, she's lived in Australia for over a decade now uh, and loves the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, she says, <laughs> well, this is just a great story. She says, one thing that stood out during my recent visit to the UK, the most exciting thing that happened was on a bus trip with my son. We're on the outer circle, number 11 route, going around Birmingham. I looked out of the window and saw Jess Phillips' constituency office. I was so excited, jumping out of my seat, pointing out of the window, shouting, Jess Phillips' office, look. To be honest, though, I probably look no stranger than most people on a Birmingham bus. My word. Well, there you go. What a... Uh... That's exactly what I would have done. I love seeing constituency officers around the place. Um, where was I uh, recently? Up in uh, up in the Highlands of Scotland and walked past a constituency office. It was a wonderful feeling. Um, so um, do email the show if you've, if you've seen a constituency office re- recently. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. If you can subscribe to the podcast, that really helps. If you can share it, just tell a friend about it or put it on your Facebook or whatever social media you have. That really, really helps with a link to it. And... Um, what else? I'll oh, leave an iTunes review if you can. That really does help other people find it. Um, and just thank you for listening. Uh, and a big thank you to Ian Dale, who um, bigs up this show regularly. Um, and he does a wonderful podcast with Jackie Smith called For The Many, which is really, really good and more than worth uh, your time. It's a really good conversation between two very reasonable people. Um, but he's he's very kind in, in, in promoting uh, this show. Um, so it's only fair that the favour is returned. But uh, thank you to all of you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colours, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.